Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, in the history of ancient Greece, three cities dominated its politics, society, and culture. Of these, Athens and Sparta are now best known. But set in the plains of central Greece was the third apex of this fateful triangle, the city of Thebes. Dismissed by both Spartans and Athenians as rustics, clods, and peasants, Boeotian swine, according to the Athenians, Thebes was nevertheless deeply consequential to the life of those two rival cities. Its myths and legends became the topics of some of the greatest of Athenian drama. Its alliance with Sparta helped tip the balance of the Peloponnesian War in Sparta's favor. And in the period of Thebes' greatest power, when it had turned against its old ally, Boeotian armies freed the helots of Sparta in successful campaigns of liberation, the like of which would not be seen again, until Toussaint Louverture raised up an army in Haiti and Sherman made Georgia howl. With me to discuss... The city of Thebes is Paul Cartledge, the A.G. Leventis Senior Research Fellow at Clare College, the University of Cambridge, and the Emeritus A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture. He is the newly elected president of the Society for the Promotion of Hellenic Studies and is an honorary citizen of modern Sparta. Author and editor and co-editor of 32 books, by my count, his 33rd is Thebes, the Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, which is the subject of our conversation today. Paul Cartledge, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for inviting me out. So um, let's get to some basic facts briskly, as a friend of yours would say. Um, <laughs> Thebes, where is it? Uh, what's its location? And uh, what surrounds it? Right, just straight out, let's uh, be clear. We're talking about Greek Thebes because, of course, there is one in Egypt, named actually after Greek, but nevertheless in some ways more famous. <laughs> but nevertheless, we're talking about Thebes in Boeotia, which is the region within which it is, the province or the county, as it were. It lies is about 90 kilometers north-northwest of Athens, many fewer kilometers as the crow flies, so something like 55 miles by road, but less by uh, direct flight. And it had its rivalries both within the region, in other words, it was the number one regional player in Boeotia, uh, pretty much probably always. We'll come on to when that is from shortly. But uh, it always had at least one quite serious rival. And the one that features most prominently until it's actually extinguished by Thebes, it's physically destroyed by Thebes, is Orkomenos. But outside Boeotia, the border, there's a kind of border, a grey area with um, the borders of um, Athens' territory, which is called Attica. And so Athens was always the most serious, both rival and very often enemy of Athens, of now, Thebes. Um, what's the geography? It's it's a plain. Uh, one of the great greatest of Thebans called it the dancing. Uh, the, what's the dancing floor of Mars? That's so, right. It varies in Greek, which is Mars yeah. in Latin. And uh, yes, it was actually really a couple of plains. And if you go there today, what you don't see is, in a way, the most interesting geographical feature of. 
it's in in antiquity, and that is uh, a lake called Copais, and that was um, drained or not completely, but somewhat uh, drained in antiquity from time to time in order to create more agricultural land, and then it was definitively drained in the 20th century, such that when you go there now, you don't see a lake, and the lake's quite interesting because, of course, it provides um, fish and various sorts of uh, wildlife around it, bird life and so on, which the ancients would catch. But there was one particular type of uh, fish, and I hope it is a fish, uh, called an eel. And they were quite famous as a delicacy, the Copaic Lake uh, uh, eels. So two really um, regions within the territory of Boeotia divided by Lake Copais. And so I mentioned Orchomenos as the principal rival within Boeotia of Thebes. That was on the northwest of Boeotia, on the northern shore of the lake. And Thebes is a fair distance actually south of the lake on the southeastern bit of the uh, province, the region. And is uh, and it, so Thebes is sort of off center of the region. It's sort of southeast of the. That's region. right. It's sufficiently yeah. far east. I mean, if you know your geography a little bit, Athens is of course just a few kilometers from the sea, and it has a number of ports. Actually, three. So you could say Athens is a kind of port city. Well, Thebes has no very near port, so it's definitely inland. But because of its military power, it was able to guarantee access for itself to ports on the coast, the east coast of mainland Greece, and most famously to Aulis, Aulis, from where in myth, the fleet finally set sail under the leadership of King Agamemnon in order to rescue Helen from Troy. So that's um, where we're talking more about myth than we are about history. So if we were going towards the, the city of Thebes across Boeotia, we'd be surrounded by fields of grain. Um, and so Boeotia is is notably rich then in the classical period because it can produce so much grain. Is that, would that yes, be correct? Yes, that somewhere? is correct. And um, it's not the richest. That is Thessaly, which is the territory not far to the north of Boeotia. But um, some people think the B-O bit at the beginning of the name Boeotia is the same B-O, beta omicron, that begins the Greek word for a cattle or cow, boos. And so it's possible that that there was a, um, some sort of relationship to pasturage, which of course requires water, and that reminds us of the Lake Copais. But as you rightly say, in terms of agriculture, and the ancient Greeks depended on three principal agricultural products, cereals, whether barley or wheat, the vine, that is the grapevine, and the olive, Boeotia was pretty rich, pretty well off. In other words, well enough off to sustain not just be, not just Thebes, but something like 20 separate settlements in the high classical period, of which Thebes was the biggest and the most important. And, and we'll get to that because it seems to me that then it creates certain problems in Boeotia and for yes. Thebes uh, that doesn't happen in, say, Attica. Um, but I might be wrong about that. No, you're um, right about that. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just a hypothesis. So, my, um, and, and Thebes itself, like so many of these uh, ancient Greek cities, is um, when as we approach it, we would see an Acropolis. Is that, yeah. uh, we would see a, we would see a, a, a rocky mass. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we yes. can surmise that's uh, settled because of ease of defense, but also there's, there's always a religious connotation eventually. Absolutely. Um, and that that's called the Cadmea, correct? It is. They, well, that's, of course, got to come much later. It's got to come after the myth of the alleged sure. foundation of the historical city by somebody called Cadmos. But before I get on to the name, the actual physical Acropolis is in area, not in height but in area, the biggest in ancient Greece. And it's always been, whenever anybody's lived in that part of the world, that has been the focus, the centre. And actually, many people lived on the Acropolis, whereas you go to Athens, yes, Uh once upon a time, people did probably live on the very top of the Acropolis, which is actually very difficult of access, and there's not that much area. But by the time you get to the famous, if you like, golden age, classical period, fifth, fourth centuries, we see nobody lives up there except the priestess of Athena and the priest of uh, Poseidon. They're just a couple of religious officials who spend any length of time up there. Whereas, as I say, in Thebes, yes, there are religious spaces. In fact, it's absolutely crucial because that's what the relationship between men and the gods is. You have these places halfway between, as it were, the earth and the heaven, and you look up from the top of an Acropolis. But apart from the religious shrines, lots of people actually lived on the Acropolis of the Kadmaia. So let's go back. Let's go to that. Uh, this is the sort of first um, recorded, to a certain extent, um, yes. but certainly ar- archaeological memory. There's a there's a palace in that we that we now know of. Can you describe some of the sort of the archaeological remains of that early Greece of ancient ancient Greece? Yes, it's more than just a memory. You're right that all the famous places in the epics of Homer, in the local epics of the Thebans, they have an archaeological basis and correlate. So these aren't just purely invented. Though the stories are fiction, there there is a real archaeological basis. But Thebes is one of those, very interestingly, which um, produced written evidence. And in the 50s, finally, these strange signs, they're actually syllabic signs, scratched on bits of clay tablet, which were not supposed to be preserved, but they were baked when they got burned in the destruction levels. This was deciphered finally as Greek. And so, oh my goodness, so all those Greek stories about dim, distant past, they actually were about real people or they were about a real era when there were Greeks in the sense there were people speaking and writing the Greek language. It wasn't known that that the Greek language went back earlier than Homer until these tablets were deciphered. Anyway, from Thebes, from, as you rightly say, the palace area, and we call it a palace because it's substantial, you know, buildings and so on, that you won't see much now, but it's been excavated on and off since the beginning of the 20th century, actually going back originally to the late 19th, but seriously from the beginning of the 20th. In amongst the ruins, unearthed, something like now 400 bits of this kind of clay tablet with inscribed Greek syllabic writing called Linear B. 
So we now know that as there were only about half a dozen such sites in the entirety of late prehistoric Greece, we call it Bro late Bronze Age or Mycenaean Greece, after the biggest site, Mycenae, which is where Agamemnon, the mythical king, was associated with. So Thebes emerges from the spade as one of the half dozen most important, most significant um, centers. And palaces were not just places where rulers ruled, but they're also places where administrators administered. So they were centralized, redistributive foci. And people living in the penumbra of the Theban Acropolis would have had to bring in their uh, grain and so on as um, they would be paying taxes. They owned slaves, they made chariots, they made things. This is the Bronze Age, so we're not talking about any iron artifacts, but bronze armor, weapons, and so on. All this stuff, the palace had a kind of prior lien. It uh, had a, an initial claim on all the people working around the palace area in Thebes had to report, as it were, to the centralized authorities. So um, at some point, and we've discussed this with uh, Dimitri Nikasas back in episode 33 and ah. Eric, Cl Eric Klein, um, I Indeed. forget what episode that is, but I'll have put those in the show notes. That passed away. We'll use that uh, to <laughs> call it pass somewhat passively since this is probably going to be a perennial source of, um, of argument. But yeah. um, And then we enter into what you define as the archaic age. Um, yes. That's the age of the person or persons known as Homer, um, the creation of this uh, of this new uh, alphabet, um, a new version of Greek. Um, so what's particularly fascinating to me is I've avoided talking about mythic Thebes until now because as best as we know, it seems, it seems this is when these myths are being told. Yes. Um, so let's, let's talk about some of those myths since that is uh, Thebes continues to grasp our imagination by means of the, the Theban cycle. Could you explain what the Theban cycle was or what we think it was and yeah. how it became what we now know? Well, let's go back first to that um, passing away. The, the yes. Mycenaean palaces were physically destroyed in Sparta or near Sparta, in Pylos, in Mycenae, in Tiryns, in um, Knossos, in Crete, and in Thebes. So Thebes is part of a generic picture which is somewhere around 1200 BC, for whatever reason. You're quite right. Let's not go there. Who exactly <laughs> did it? Why? But what what's very important is that following the climax where there were more people living in the Greek peninsula at a higher level than ever before. There was a total economic collapse, recession. Settlements shrink both in number and in, in um, quality. The, the beginning of the era, the 11th century, 10th century, many of us still call it a dark age, but there is a bright side to it, and that's, you've mentioned Homer, that's, uh, on, as it were, on the cultural, the, the um, literary side, but on the um, economic, on the material side, this is also the early Iron Age, and they go over to making their cutting-edge tools, swords and uh, half-sold knives and so on, typically of iron, which is much more plentiful. And Thebes and Boeotia takes part in this general change. But there is a way in which Thebes is unique in this Dark Age, Early Iron Age period, which is culturally, and you mentioned the Theban cycle. Well, now, 
How do we know or what is the linkage between that Bronze Age, late Mycenaean Greece, writing in Linear B syllabary and the early historical period, the ending of the Dark Age, the new Enlightenment, Homer, and a new alphabetic script? What's the connection? Well, in some sense, there isn't one because they are, it's a new beginning. On the other hand, we do have a pretty clear idea that there is a continuous epic tradition which goes back to sitting around the far side in the great palaces singing songs about the terrific heroes uh, of old and some of the heroes of the contemporary period. And then those traditions, we call it oral traditional epic poetry. There is a continuity of epic from the late Bronze Age through to the time when they're first written down. But this is where Thebes is uh, distinctive and unique. The dominant tradition, the, the most, if you like, famous one in Greece as a whole, is the Homeric epics, the Trojan War epics, and then the consequent odyssey of Odysseus, because he was at Troy, he invented the Trojan horse, he got away he took 10 years to get back to his kingdom. So you've got two major epics. Well, in those two major all Greek epics, Thebes is rather rubbished. It's sort of suppressed. And it's as if there's a rivalry going on between the poets of that tradition. And these are the ones that really interest me and you, the Theban epic cycle poets who produced between them four epics, none of them survives. And again, I think, why don't they survive as such? Some nasty people must have decided they weren't worth preserving as such. We call By them Athenians. Yes, exactly. <laughs> By comparison with Homer, and we know that the Athenians, who actually don't feature very strongly in the Iliad, and of course they don't feature in the Odyssey at all, they made a big song and dance about how they were heirs to that great epic tradition. And of course, the Thebans had their own tradition. And this is where, sorry to be so long-winded, but we finally get to Cadmos, the founder of Thebes. And that's why the Acropolis is called the Cadmire after him. It's Cadmos's place. Well, Cadmos wasn't a Greek. I mean, this is quite extraordinary. The yeah. myth, the story is that he was a prince and um, his, he had a lovely sister whose name was Europa, which is where Europe gets its name from. But she was an Asiatic because Cadmos and Europa came from what is, well, in, in English form, Tyre. It's still called Tyre in what's today Lebanon today. So down comes Zeus, a good or rather a bad Greek god, the most powerful god of all, takes a fancy to Europa and walks off or rather flies off with her back to mainland Greece. Cadmos, distraught, his sister's just been, well, let's be blunt, raped and then taken off for his own purposes. Cadmos sets sail for what is mainland Greece and... Various things happen. Um, he gets as far as Delphi. Delphi advises him, look for a cow wherever the cow rests, found a new city. Oh, dear, there's a dragon guarding what, what you and I would call the Cadmire, that Acropolis area. He has to kill that. He takes all the teeth of the dragon out. He sews the teeth of the dragon and up pop 
fully armed warriors. Well, clearly this is utterly fantastic and impossible, but it's all Theban. And I think other Greeks didn't like the fact that Thebes had this wonderful foundation story. So what do, do other- we think that, do we think that all those stories come from a lost epic poem? We do. Yeah. We do. Yeah. I mean there as I say four titles are known. But the most famous after the Cadmos and then the building of the city and there are two um, sons of Zeus actually called Zethos and Amphis they actually physically erect the walls. Thebes becomes famous for having not just very powerful walls but seven not one not two to seven gates in the walling. Well, probably implausible, but already in Homer, Thebes, Greek Thebes, is seven-gated. However, Egyptian Thebes is 100-gated. It's, <laughs> it's a classic case of you know putting down um, the Greek Thebes by the poets of the non-Theban tradition. Well, the other dominant bit of the Theban epic tradition concerns the descendants of Cadmos. So we're talking about somebody called Pentheus, or as he's sometimes also called Tentheus. And we can come back to this, but at any rate, he pitches up in um, a part of the cycle where uh, Dionysus appears. Now, Dionysus is actually the Greek god Dionysus, half Theban, because his mother, Semele, is Theban. And we should perhaps say here that Heracles or Hercules, the other major um, divine power that the Thebans worshipped, they worshipped three really, Apollo, Dionysus, and Hercules or Heracles in Greek. His mother was also Theban. uh, And this this seems to me rather extraordinary that a city worships two homegrown gods. It is unique. It is unique. Okay, there's no other city that has that pretension. And I'm sure that other cities must have, I'm sure Sparta and Athens regarded it as a pretension. It, they would have done. And if you think about it, there is a pantheon, all gods, so typically 12, and they're called Olympians because they're supposed to live on the top of the tallest mountain in Greece, which is Mount Olympus, over 10,000 feet. And the dominant one of them is Zeus, whom I've already mentioned. And um, other Greek cities chose their patron deity from among the members of that body. Well, Dionysus, interestingly, doesn't always feature in every version of 12 Olympians. And he is thought somehow to be both an insider and an outsider. So that's quite interesting. Heracles, Hercules, is born not as a god, but as a demigod, because his dad is a god, Zeus, but his mum is a mortal, Alcmene. So they're not actually top draw Olympian gods. The really top ones include, I've already mentioned Apollo. Well, Thebes grabbed Apollo as well, but Athena for Athens and Athena, this is a bit of a surprise, for Sparta. She was the principal patron deity, not only of Athens, but to whom she gave her name, but also uh, of Sparta. So the Theban pantheon is significantly distinctly different from those of the other two really big players in the classical Greek world. Um, one thing that you, you discuss in chapter four, the spread of religious sanctuaries that, and during the archaic period, yeah. it's kind of significant, it seems to me, that these 
that these stories of mythic Thebes are beginning at the same time as this real explosion of sanctuaries. And I was wondering about the connection uh, that you think might exist between memorialization and then sort of the this sort of created memory. Well, the there is always in ancient religion, and this is some some you know very much true of pagan, i.e., pre-Christian religions, where you don't have just one god, but you've got many, many gods, and you've got heroes, and some of them are very local. Only that particular village, or even those few families, worship that one. So there is a sense in which um, the expansion of Thebes uh, in the eighth century and the seventh century, as it's emerging from the Dark Age and becoming the dominant city of Boeotia as a whole, it's going to radiate out its notions of divinity. And so Poseidon gets worshipped. Um, we've already mentioned Athena. She gets a bit of an action in one of the very important shrines which unite more than one city of Boeotia. But Thebes itself, as I say, Heracles, Apollo, and Dionysus, they're the, they're the top three, as it were. Um before we move on, uh, we should talk about the um, we should talk about the very difficult word polis, um, especially as that becomes important to the future of uh, the, the, the distinctions between them becomes very important to Boeotia and to and to Thebes as yeah. as the primary city of Boeotia. Yeah. So, what uh, how should we translate? Polis. It's a complicated um, notion. It's a complex and complicated notion. I personally translate it because when you, you the ancient Greeks didn't say Athens did such and such. They said the Athenians did such and such. So I translate it as citizen state. But the normal translation is city state. So in some sense, it has a sort of urban core, which can be actually relatively unurban, in other words, not exactly built up. You've got mm. to imagine nothing quite like any modern city. But nevertheless, it's got a central political core. And of course, political is derived directly from the Greek word polis. But in ancient Greek terms, the key derivation from polis is politai, which is the noun substantive meaning the citizens, uh, the citizen, adult male citizens of any particular settlement that is politically organized with uh, an assembly, a council, uh, a legal system, and a religious pantheon which is centrally organized and administered. In all those things that go together with being an organized political entity. That is what a polis was. But a polis can also mean just um, the high city, so acropolis, high mm. city, but sometimes polis just means the acropolis. It has, in other words, a purely physical, not a um, political dimension as well. It's a, as I say, it's a complex term. So how many, by 500, um, yeah. how, about how many polities, uh, how many citizen uh, ci uh, citizen states are there in Boeotia? Right. I would say there's the order uh, between 17 and 22, so fluctuating around about 20. And um, they're of 
by our standards, you know, really pretty tiny. And we've got no census records. There's no um, complete excavation of any settlement such that you could roughly work out if you assign so many houses to so many acres or hectare. You know, you can't actually do it in any very scientific way. But if you imagine that the normal Greek polis, of which there are about a thousand altogether, so Boeotia's 20 is just just a very small <laughs> percent, but by a thousand, I mean in the entirety of the Greek world, which expands yeah. out as far west as what's today southern France, North Africa, the um, north shore of the Black Sea, so Ukraine and Russia and so on, Georgia at the far, you know, there's a huge penumbra of um, Hellas, as the Greeks called. The Greeks didn't call themselves Greeks, they called themselves Hellenes. But um, if you think that the modal, the most frequently occurring size, of a citizen body is between 500 and 2,000 adult male politi citizens. Multiply that by four. So between 2,000 and 8,000 citizens. Well, teeny tiny. Big in terms of an opera house, um, the Met <laughs> Opera, 6,000 or whatever, or is it 4,000? The Kremlin, I think, has 6,000. But that's a city. That's a country. That's a nation you know, using our vocabulary. So teeny tiny. Thebes, probably the order of 10,000, um, between eight and 10,000, rather like Sparta, which was between eight and 10,000 at this time. So multiply that by four, you get up to 50,000 or so um, citizens, that is men, their wives, their children. And that's the core political dimension of any Greek city. And that's Thebes in around about 500 BC, shall we say. And so these bo these do, do Boeotians consider them uh, self-consciously refer to themselves as Boeotians? Yes, like, they do, because we actually have what we call um, epigraphical texts, so things that are inscribed either on bronze or stone. And in one of these, a dedication, this is classic, they're de dedicating an offering to a god, in this case Apollo. They call themselves the Boeotians. And then when you get later on, it becomes an issue outside Boeotians. Boeotia. The Boeotians call themselves the Boeotians, but in order to put them down, let's say the Athenians, for example, call the Boeotian federal state the Thebans. So that's <laughs> diminishing them, whereas they call themselves the Boeotians. It is a, a fine distinction because not every Boeotian city was happy to be under Thebes, to be uh, subservient or at any rate not as important as Thebes. So they would have been less Boeotian conscious than the Thebans, for whom, of course, having the whole of Boeotia united under them, that's great. They're us. Boeotians are us. Yeah. So you refer to this phenomenon as, as, as being culturally but not politically Boeotian, which is a very interesting distinction, particularly at this time where culture is, culture is cult. And, yes. Um, and uh, to not be and, – and cult is also politics. It's, well, there was the, one festival actually called the Pamboyotia, the All Boeotia or All Boeotians Religious Festival annual at a place called Onkistos. And Onkistos was within the orbit of Thebes. But it was devoted to Poseidon, interestingly. So not Dionysus or Apollo or Heracles, the three Theban 
great gods, or not Athena either, who is worshipped elsewhere at Coronea in a Boeotia-wide festival. But um, Poseidon, I think that's quite clever. It gives you the link to the sea. Poseidon's also the god of earthquakes. He's the earth shaker, the earth holder. And these occurred, of course, uh, in, oh. in throughout mainland Greece. And there's an earthquake fault that goes along the Corinthian Gulf, which is just to the west of Thebes. So um, Pericles would later say that Boeotia is like uh, tall trees. Yes. That's a very lovely um, metaphor or simile. Um, and this is the this is very significant for what we're about to discuss. Is that um, you have this tremendous rivalry between the little the little city of Plataea um, and even, I guess, to some extent, Thespiae and, uh, yes. and Thebes. Could you, could you briefly explain that? Well, let's just stick to Plataea for the moment Plataea. because um, that was a city uh, ethnically, um, culturally, linguistically, <laughs> Boeotian, which politically chose at a crucial moment when Thebes has, first of all, dominated the whole of Boeotia and is formulating and founding actually a very new kind of political organization, which is a multi-polis. We might call it a federal system. Thebes is exerting its power federally. Quite interesting. Not in the usual isolating way of a a city uh, in the usual Greek way. Anyway, Patea wants out. And so where do you go if you want not to join the dominant group to which you, as it were, naturally belong? Well, you look, of course, uh, to an enemy of uh, Thebes. And there was one ready-made on the doorstep, namely Athens. And Patea wasn't the only Boeotian city, actually, that the Athenians managed to almost physically to incorporate in their own city. There was a place called Eleutherai, which becomes very important in terms of um, religion and theatre, because Dionysus of that town, Eleutherai, was the Dionysus who was the patron god of theatre. We're going to come back to theatre in Athens. At any rate, Plataea wanted out. It applied first to Sparta, which was then the most powerful city in uh, all Greece, and that's a, a separate issue of how it became became so. But one of the reasons was it controlled, it owned, it dominated the largest territory in the entirety of the Greek world. And so within it, it had both fertile lands and lots and lots of unfree Greek workers. So Sparta's a big deal. Patea allegedly, our sources Herodotus, applied to the most important king of Sparta. Sparta oddly had two kings. And he said, no, no, we're too far away from you to give you the sort of assistance you want against Thebes. And that was actually borne out. It was too far away. It was two to three days march. Why don't you apply to Athens? And um, the Plataeans did apply to Athens. The Athenians agreed. They made an alliance. And that actually bore a great deal of fruit. And we may be able to come back to some aspects of that. But it meant that Plataea was a standout, a holdout from the Boeotian Federation forever and ever. Well, let's go to the first uh, point where that makes a little bit of difference. Um, we uh, come to the great inflection point yes. <laughs> of, of the Persian Wars, um, and uh, which had immense effect upon Thebes and upon Thebes' reputation. Um, so 
briskly. Um, <laughs> how, how, how did uh, how did how did that fall out? We call them the Persian Wars. We ancient historians, because we look at them from the Greek side, and we look at them specifically through the text. It's an astonishing, huge. It's the longest piece of ancient Greek prose surviving from antiquity. And it's Herodotus, and he's sometimes called, as Cicero called him, the father of history. And we think that he's the first attempt to write not just what happened, but why, and to do it not totally from a propagandistic or moralistic point of view, but from an explanatory point of view. So in some sense, he is my founding father of my discipline of historiography. Well, now, the Persian Empire was absolutely huge, based, of course, in Iran um, today, as we call it. Uh, the Persians were the southern Iranians. The Medes were the northern Iranians. First of all, the Persians take over Iran. Then they spread left, right, within a generation, the Persian Empire between 550 and 525 extends as far east as Afghanistan, Pakistan, and as far west as the Aegean, and then round the Aegean into northern Greece, and then round into North Africa, into Egypt. Quite extraordinary. Huge. The fastest growing eastern empire of its kind up to that date. Well, now... They had already, by the beginning of the 5th century BC, got into northern Greece. And so the northern Greeks, the Macedonians and the Thessalians to begin with, they posed a question, do we join them, do we fight them, or do we try and stay neutral? And the Macedonians caved in, they became part of the Persian Empire. The Thessalians, when faced with a real choice, in other words, the Persians are threatening to invade, they went over to the Persians. So we're in the 480s BC. We've had the Battle of Marathon, which the Persians lost. They sent a great armada by sea, and they lost a major battle to the Athenians and the Plataeans united at Marathon, 490 BC. Well, in the following decade, it's quite clear the Persians are going to come back. And this time, they don't want just to fight the Athenians. They want to fight all Greeks. They want to incorporate mainly and Greece in the Persian Empire. So once the Thessalians to the north of Thebes have gone over to the Persians, the Thebans have a really unpleasant choice. South of them is an alliance. It's shaky, it's small, it's untried. Athens leads the alliance by sea, Sparta by land. Normally, those two did not get on very well, so that just shows you how great the pressure was from the Persian Empire. And the Thebans are ruled by a narrow clique. The Greeks had a word, dunastia, which gives us dynasty. So extreme oligarchs, and they were right-wing, as it were, and they quite liked the thought that if the Persians came in, well, they would be all right, because the Persians would, as they'd done elsewhere in their empire, prop up the local bigwigs. It's a bit like the British Empire in India and Africa, where you oh. prop up the local chiefs or rajas. So the Theban oligarchy, the dynasty, opted to go with the Persians. And as you say, it was that fatal decision. They probably wouldn't have thought it would be fatal because they 
well, and actually it would have been quite reasonable to expect the Persians to win, but the fact that the Persians lost was extremely bad news for the Thebans because it meant they were on the defeated side that had gone over to the barbarian enemy. They'd, um, you know, been traitors to the cause of Hellenism. Yeah, they're, they're, they've medized. Yeah, well, that's the word used. And of course, Mede is a nasty term because Persians were not Medes. But the Greeks, in order to be unpleasant to the Persians, they called them Medes. It's like me calling you Canadian. I'm assuming yeah. you're American. Yeah, that's that's that. Please don't do that, <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa. They don't like it either. Um, the uh, what um, the uh, I'm so I'm so rattled by that that, that terrible Sorry, insult. Tim, yeah, no, Sorry, it really is a low bad. blow. But uh, but uh, at Thermopylae, of course, three hundred right. Spartans die. It's been said, um, but everyone forgets the little thespians who also yes. died to the last man. But there are also Thebans at Thermopylae. So how do we explain that? Did they were they sent before the the Dynastia changed it? mind. Well, you've put your finger on it because um, it's like uh, in my book, Thebes, people forget about Thebes periodically. Well, most people most of the time forget entirely about the Thespians and um, even more forget about the the Thebans who are actually on the side of the resistors at um, Thermopylae. Well, Thermopylae is the first um, place at which it's seriously possible to resist an army coming down by land from the north. And this happened in the Second World War, for example, when the Germans went through uh, Thermopylae. And the force that Leonidas, one of the two kings of Sparta, was able to muster, some 7,000 men in all, had at its core himself, plus a specially picked 300. So actually there were 301 Spartans at Thermopylae. It's uh, just a technical point. Now, there were more Thebes there and many more thespians there. What the hell's going on? The Thebans later said, look, um, we were not a properly organized polity in 480. We had this terrible clique who were raving pro-Persians, as it were, appeasers, uh, as we might have called them in the Second World War in Europe. And mm-hmm. so, well, you know, we had no choice, but they joined the Persians. I didn't join the Persians. My dad didn't. We were, of course, loyalists. And look, 400 of us fought. We joined up voluntarily with Leonidas to fight against the Persians. Um, the anti-Theban view, this is in Herodotus, this is the dominant non-Theban view after the Persian Wars, those 400 were grabbed by Leonidas. As he went past, he said, right, I'm either going to sack your city or you give me 400 hostages whom I'm going to take with me to Thermopylae to make sure that you in Thebes can do nothing physically to help the Persians if and when they come down as far as you in central Greece. So that's the alternative. Either they were loyalist Greeks wanting to support the cause of anti-Persian resistance, or they were hostages. And who knows what the truth is? They were allegedly, some of them, still alive on the very final day. There's a three-day battle at Thermopylae. But, and um, it's said that they were treated extremely badly by the Persians when 
when because the Persians presumably thought that they must have been disloyal, the Persians took the view: "You've been fighting with Nidas, you're certainly therefore our enemies," and they yeah. allegedly branded them, which um, is what you do to slaves. But at any rate, um, what about the Thespians? Well, now Thespiae is one of the twenty or so other Boeotian cities within Boeotia. Thebes is dominant. Orchomenos is the main threat because it's the biggest other city and it's quite difficult to get at. It's the other side of Lake Copais. Thespia is much more accessible and it retains what it, I think probably it was more democratically inclined. I think that's my reading of why it liked the fact that Athens was resisting the Persians because Athens was a very early democracy. Sparta wasn't a democracy at all. That wouldn't be part of the equation for the Thespians. But they sent 700 hoplites, heavy-armed infantrymen. It is estimated that that was the totality of Thespian citizens who could afford to equip themselves as heavy-armed infantrymen. So their entire hoplite army joined up, volunteered to join uh, Leonidas's resistance. And, and this is the, well, most amazing fact, really, all of them died. Whereas many of these, remember I mentioned 7,000. Well, many of them left. They were allowed to go. When it was clear that the pass was going to be forced, Leonidas either sent them away or they just ran away. At any rate, all the Thespians stayed and like almost all the Spartans, actually two Spartans out of the 300, for one reason or another, did not die on uh, the third day at Thermopylae. They survived. But all 700 Thespians uh, are said to have died. Well, let's uh, fast forward to the, the culminating battle of the Persian Wars, which, as the fates would have it, was at Plataea. Yes, its fates would have it, and because, as you earlier said, um, one of the uh, descriptions of um, the region of Boeotia was that it was the dancing floor of Ares, the god of war. Greeks loved dancing, and the Greek word for dance is choros, which means a chorus, singing and dancing. And the way in which you worship collectively in many uh, parts of Greece is by dancing. So Ares liked to dance, in other words. There were many major conflicts in Boeotia because it's this central transitional region between North and South Greece. And and flat, exactly. And so Plataea, it was actually not right by the town of Plataea. It's just a few kilometers away. And the battle um, took the form of a standoff for something like uh, 11 days. The Persians north of the river Asopos, the Greeks, the resistance led by the Spartans with lots of Athenians now and others, um, possibly as many as 100,000 resisting oh. Greeks against what? 150,000 Persians of different sorts, not just Persian, of course, ethnically, but other members of the Persian Empire, 
lots of different types of weaponry and formations, much more raggle-taggle and heterogeneous. Anyway, the and, um, and also significantly, unlike we uh, Thermopylae, a, a, a the Persians are joined by a significant force of of Theban hoplites. I'm afraid to say this is really where um, Thebes gets yeah. its yeah, because they not just said yes, we want you to win, but they actually put their mouth, you know, their bodies where their mouths were, and they actually fought against Greeks at this climactic battle, which basically was a Spartan victory, though aided significantly by Athenians on land. And of course, Proteans were fighting with the Athenians again uh, on land against um, the Persians and the Thebans. And it's a great victory. I mean, it's a trap. The Persians are lured over the Asopos so that they fight where the Greeks, the resisting Greeks, want them to fight on their terrain. And um, the, the Spartan hoplites basically were just too good for the um, Persian equivalent. Persia's main strike force was always its cavalry, not its infantry. So the Spartans were able to um, whack the, the Persians and to disrupt the cavalry, and the rest was uh, a Greek victory, a major Greek victory. And, it, and if um, Thebes was being controlled by a very small oligarchy, uh, Dynastia, I mean, uh, even... Many oligarchies would apparently have blushed at the excesses of this oligarchy. I mean, it was so yes. small, right? I mean, this is um, a, a tyrannical, particularly tyrannical oligarchy. They die. Members of the Dynastia die yes. on the battlefield. So that I mean, that's a, it leads to, it seems to me, it leads to a little revolution in, in Thebes again. Yes. Well, some of them die on the battlefield, okay. but there is at least one called Atagynos. And there's a kind of Nuremberg trial. And mm. the leader of the loyalist Greeks is not actually a king of Sparta. He's a regent. He's called Pausanias. And very cleverly, instead of trying these guys somewhere in central Greece near the battlefield, he says, right, you go off. We're going to take you off to Corinth in the Peloponnese, well out of the way of the Persians and um, the battle. And it's a symbolic center where the original oaths were sworn to resist the Greeks. There's a shrine of Poseidon there, and they'd all taken an oath the few cities that agreed to resist. And so that's where Ataginus was condemned to death and executed. Well, let's fast forward to the other major inflection point, the Peloponnesian War. Yeah. Uh, when I first uh, was assigned to Cities, it was in a contemporary international politics class. It was very common, <clears throat> excuse me, during Cold War American education yes. that you read Thucydides as part of this. And Thucydides is always given, you know, this is the real realist. This is realism. <laughs> this is this is this is power and how it works and all the rest of it. Yeah. And yet, as the more I've read Thucydides and the, read you and others and talk to Jennifer Roberts and read her on the Peloponnesian War, you see that beneath the surface. There's something ideological, maybe even, dare I say, idealistic going on. Yeah, yeah. There seems to be an ideological conflict uh, beneath certain aspects of the Peloponnesian War. And, and you tease this out in, 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 as, as, you, as you go through it. And certainly that does explain how we transition from the Peloponnesian War into what comes after. Could you talk a little bit about this possible ideological conflict that's going on? Yes, just to pick up your first point about Thucydides and how he used to be, I'm not sure if he still is, but taught as if emotion and ideology were, as it were, put on one side so that we focus on what really makes yeah. the difference. Yeah. Well, there is that, though. One mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a real 
this Thucydides there as yeah. well. But the ideological or idealistic dimension resolves itself typically. It's a little bit broad brush between democracy and oligarchy. And very crudely, democracy is a system of government in which all citizens at some level have an equal say and decisions for the community as a whole, the state as a whole, are reached by majority voting. You then assess and everybody has an equal vote and so on. Whereas oligarchy, the rule of the few, is weighted systematically towards the few who are rich, such that in the most extreme versions, the masses, the majority who are poor, have no say. And then there are moderate versions where they're allowed to say in this aspect of governance, but not that aspect. They can't hold this office, they can hold that, and so on. So Thebes in the middle between uh, Athens and Sparta geographically is also between the two in terms of its um, political constitution, because not being a democracy, it doesn't become a democracy uh, for another hundred years or so. It's on the other hand, not as, not ever is it going to go back to the kind of oligarchy that behaved so badly as they later see it uh, at the time of the Persian War. So it's a moderate sort of oligarchy. <clears throat> and what they do they form um, a kind of, uh, as I say, middle ground between Sparta, which is very odd, but it's got lots and lots of unfree Greeks at the base, not a nice form of economic political system at all. Thebes is not like that. They have uh, slaves, but they don't uh, exclude lots of Greeks from any uh, share in the polity whatsoever. And there is within, this is where we come back to this fact that Boeotia and Thebes itself are probably quite divided. There are those Boeotians and Thebans who want to move towards the Athenian democracy and those who wish not to go back to the extreme oligarchy, but certainly to remain more oligarchic. So there's a tension. Well, the Athenians decide in the 450s, and it's very um, good case of overreach, really, imperialistic overreach. They claim they're summoned in by their supporters in Boeotia, including Thebes, to help the Boeotians and Thebans become democratic. Well, that's one way of putting it. But for 10 years, the Athenians dominate Boeotia until enough Thebans and other Boeotians think, we're fed up with the Athenians throwing their weight around. We want to be independent with our own system. So there's a big battle. The Athenians are booted out. And that is when Thebes undergoes or introduces a major, major political reform, transforming Thebes into a moderate form of oligarchy on a federal basis. It sets up, we actually have a, a, a source who sets out how the federal state of the Boeotians, dominated by the Thebans, operates. And that operates for half a century and more, from the mid-440s to the 380s, when it's physically destroyed by the uh, uh, Spartans, as it happens. Anyway, that is the Boeotian federation that, when Sparta and Athens go head-to-head, -head, the Thebans, as with the Persian War, do we go with the Spartans, or do we go with the Athenians, they had no hesitation. They went with the Spartans because they were an oligarchic state, not a democratic state. And that's
that's where your, I think, ideology comes in, and that's how it pans out. It's very important that when Sparta's attacking Athens by land, it's got this wonderful ally just to the north of Athens, a real pain um, that can always be used as a base and as a reinforcement and so on and so on. And so, uh, as this forever war drags yeah. on, um, by the end of it, Athens is completely, I mean, I mean, at least under Pericles, it never intended to contest on the land. Uh, and when it does, it loses, as at Delium, uh, loses to Thebes badly. Yes. Um, but eventually, and by the end of the war, I mean, the Thebans are, to say that they're ransacking Attica yes. is, to put it, a mild understatement. They're taking the roof tiles away. They are the uh, it's extraordinary. <laughs> and it's the extraordinary. Wood, the window frames made I mean, wood and why, the door. Why bother, why bother to build your own when the Atticans have, you know, can provide <laughs> you with them? You know? <laughs> and uh, there is just some one thing to put in that. The war, as you write, say, goes on and off, for getting on for 30 years. But there's a big caesura, a hiatus, where technically the Spartans and the Athenians are at peace. But the Athenians make a fatal mistake. They think, right, let's see where else can we expand so that we've got even more resources to take on the Spartans should the war flare up. I know, Sicily. So they try to conquer first Syracuse, then the rest of the island. Total disaster, which means that for the last bit of the Peloponnesian War, the last, um, it's from 413 to 404, so nine, ten years, there is actually a Spartan camp an encampment in Athenian territory between the frontier uh, with Boeotia to the north and the city of Athens, about equidistant. And that's why, under the cover of that army, Spartans, the Thebans and other Boeotians can just, with impunity, cross the frontier, come into the north and eastern part of Attica, the territory of Athens, and nick Athenian property. <laughs> and of course, not just um, household uh, bits, but cattle, crops, and they actually prevent the Athenians from deriving the principal source of um, wealth, which is actually from the silver mines in the southeast of Attica. They cease to be worked because the um, task force, the labor force, is at risk of being killed, or the labor force has actually run away. Lots and lots of the slaves working in those mines ran away. And where do you run to by land? You run to Boeotia. And I, and I assume that if any, if any uh, free Athenians were left in the countryside, they were enslaved. Well, if the Thebans could, or the other bear could get hold of them, but of course, um, typically uh, they would be somewhat protected there because yeah. these little towns or hamlets had some sorts of fortifications and so on. Some of the little villages of Attica were really quite developed. They're sort of mini um, policies, mini cities. Well. So, as all comes to an end, um, Lysander sails into the Piraeus, and uh, they place uh, Athens under the rule of the Thirty. Um, at the end of the war, if you wish to learn more about this, I would suggest episode 121, where I talk with Jennifer Roberts uh, about her history of the Peloponnesian War. Um, then Thebes changes its mind uh, relatively quickly. 
Yes. Uh, how and why? Well, with Corinth, which is another um, very important ally of Sparta, and also an oligarchy, they think this is the moment for Sparta to actually physically wipe Athens off the map in the way that, and I'm sorry to have to say this, but the Thebans had wiped Plataea off the map in 426 BC. The, the Greeks are not nice to each other. The word herbicide comes to mind. So the Thebans want the Spartans to commit herbicide against Athens. And the Spartans say no, because Athens, look back to the Persian War. Where would we have been without them? They've done such services to Greece. And the Spartans are now presenting themselves as really good Greeks. And they're actually quite soon going to take on the Persians, whom the Athenians had been um, at peace with, but had always had a kind of uneasy relationship with. And the Thebans, therefore, are very, very angry when they think, ah, so really the Spartans want to use Athens as a base against us to keep us down. We're not going to get the fruits of the great victory that we have done so much to contribute towards, politically speaking. We've got economic benefits. We want um, political benefits. At any rate, they therefore decide to aid the exiles who have been resisting the Spartan domination of Athens. They've actually put on the Acropolis an armed camp of ex-helots, freed slaves, put on as a garrison in Athens. The regime of Athens is an extreme oligarchy, a very narrow one, perhaps rather like the Theban oligarchy in 480-479. And they give aid and succor. They actually physically, as well as um, morally, support the Athenian resistance, which, after a battle in the Piraeus, actually defeats the forces of the extreme right-wing oligarchs running Athens. And then the situation is open again. The question is, what line will Thebes take on the freed Athens, the re-democratized Athens, as it attempts to rebuild following its defeat in the Peloponnesian War? And so in this period, um, it would seem that Thebes, its, um, its mixed regime is tilting uh, closer to democracy while still remaining uh, an Aristotelian sort of mixed regime. Exactly. Right? It's very nicely put, yeah. Um, and at, at some point, uh, Sparta decides Thebes is a threat and garrisons them. Uh, and then there is this tremendous commando raid um, by Theban, by now Theban exiles who are now taking refuge in Athens. It's very confusing. This is welcome to Greek politics. Yeah. They come back and they storm the Cadmea yeah. at night probably yeah. in the rain, and, um, and uh, kill the Spartans. And yeah. now Thebes and now Thebes enters its period of, and the Boeotian Federation enters its power, mm -hmm. the apex of its power. Could you talk about Pelopidas and, and, the, and this term? Epaminondas, yeah. Yeah, and Epaminondas, yeah. yeah. Well, we have to go back just a little bit because um, the Thebans actually ally with the Athenians and with the Corinthians against Sparta in the 390s into the 380s because they now see Sparta as a very nasty imperialistic power, worse even than Athens was. And huh. so that gives you some sort of perspective. At any rate, 
having um, Sparta actually wins that, it's called the Corinthian War, and it's then that they take it out on the Thebans. They dissolve the federal state. A few years later, they impose that garrison that you've just mentioned, 382. Very nasty. Thebes is now occupied actually illegally and therefore sacrilegiously because ancient Greeks, when they swore a treaty, they swore it in the name of the gods. So this is not just a secular delict. It's a, a sacrilegious, a religious crime. And then, as you say, a bunch of Theban exiles, and guess where they had gone to be in exile? It's like Paris in the beginning of the 20th century for Russian exiles from the Tsar, or later on for Bolshevik, anti-Bolshevik exiles in the south of France. So they go to Athens, which is a democracy. Led by Pelopidas, they um, very cleverly unseat the very nasty Theban pro-Spartan oligarchy. They dissolve the garrison, they recover their autonomy, and it's in this terrific burst in the 370s of renewal. They revive their um, federal state on a new moderately democratic basis. They undertake major army reforms, including creating an extraordinary regiment. It's called the Sacred Band, 150 male-male uh, couples, lovers in some sense. It, it actually is quite difficult to think about how the mechanics of it would have worked. <laughs> but anyway, they were the best fighters. They were rated the, the top regiment of the Thenian, Theban army. And then Thebes allies with, of course, Athens uh, against Sparta, and there's quite a bit of an anti-Spartan um, movement. Well, the Spartans are extremely unhappy about all this, and they successively invade or try to invade Boeotia, but they fail. And then eventually it all comes to uh, a terrific climax. There are a couple well, of attempts at peace, but we come to a battle, the Battle of Leuctra. Which is, in some ways, the battle. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 nothing has like has ever happened like this before in in Greece. Um, it's as important for not just Theban and Boeotian history, but for Greek history as, in a way, the Battle of Salamis was in the in the fifth century. And so, it's mainly Thebans, and because of new tactics, higher morale, the Spartans are demoralized. Spartan allies are not happy with the Spartans. Spartan citizen bodies shrunk, they've not moved with the times, and they are thrashed on the battlefield of Leuctra, which is in Boeotia, in um, southwest Boeotia. And what, what proportion of Spartan citizens, uh, which was always small, uh, the Spartiates, yeah. uh, what, what proportion of them died at Leuctra? Well, we're told our main source is um, an, an Athenian called Xenophon, who doesn't like Thebans, though he has one particular Theban buddy. The Thebans, because they've become democratic, because they're anti-Spartan, he doesn't like them. So he doesn't do as much in the way of bumping them up or telling the truth about the Thebans as he really should. But we presumably believe him when he says something to the detriment of Sparta. And he says 700 Spartans fought at uh, Leuctra, and that would have been about two-thirds of the entirety of the adult male Spartan citizens. They've shrunk 
from 4,000 or so in about 400 and about 8,000 or so a century before in 480. So something very bad's going on in Sparta. And therefore, of those 700, 400 died, more than half, about a, a third of the entirety of the Spartan citizen body. And of the rest, well, they gave in, they, they surrendered. And that for the Spartans was a terrible crime. They committed a crime of cowardice. So everything about that battle was really, really bad from the Spartan point of view. And at this point, um, this, well, I mean, he used to be uh, very well known in, in some ways, but it's a question of sources. Plutarch's uh, bi biography of Epaminondas doesn't exist. Uh, Polybius could have written a biography of him, didn't. Um, had plenty of sources, I'm sure, yes, about him. Yeah. And um, so we have this extraordinary character who mobilizes Boeotia, all of Boeotia, yes, yes. and turns it south on this this war of liberation to finally deal with the the source of Spartan power, yes. which is its, its rule over the Helots. So could yeah. you describe that? Well, what I like about Epaminondas is that he was apparently a thinker as well as a doer. So um, the sources, such as they are, and as you say, we don't have the what would have been the best source, Plutarch's life. Though Plutarch's living much later, he would have read the contemporary stuff. Um, Epaminondas was a Pythagorean in some sense, so a vegan or a vegetarian in mm -hmm. modern terms, which is interesting. He never married, which is interesting, because most Greeks sort of automatically, male Greeks married, had children and had property to hand on and the succession, you know, people to remember them after that and so on. Well, Epaminondas didn't take part in any of that. He was a terrifically dedicated politician. And so far as his political ideology went, he was some sort of Democrat, probably moderate rather than extreme, but he was a convinced Federalist. I mean, uh, Jefferson and so on have nothing on him because he founded um, an entire city. It's actually the city of um, Polybius, you mentioned earlier, Megalopolis, which was a federal capital of a new federal state of the Arcadians. But you mentioned the Helots, and this is really, I suppose, the greatest of his liberationist achievements. He both invaded with a huge army, the territory of the Spartans, for the first time that that territory had been invaded for hundreds of years. Loads of them um, just went over, as it were. It's like the Persian invasion. Lots of Greeks went over to the Persians when a huge army is among them. In the same way, lots of northern um, Spartan allies went over to the Theban, as, Theban army as it invaded. And the main result of the first invasion Epaminondas actually invaded the Peloponnese four times in all over the years. The main consequence of the first one was the foundation of an entirely new Greek city called Messini. And the Messenians were the larger portion of the Helot underclass, which had sustained the Spartan power and way of life for hundreds of years. They're Greeks, they worship the same gods, they um, share the same myths, but they're unfree. By definition, they're born into slavery as helots. And so 
at a stroke, they're liberated and they have a new city, new fortification, huge walls, nine kilometers of walling, still extant in quite substantial amounts. If you go down and have a look, Mount Ithomi is the Acropolis behind the city. It's a well worth visiting the site. And uh, just with the helots, it's it's hard to get this through to a modern um, a modern um, sensibility. Yeah. These are, as you say, Greeks. Um, it's it's basically as if the Canadians came and enslaved all the Americans in yeah. many ways, um, because it's a smaller population, um, it, which conquers a larger one and keeps that under. Um, uh, well, uh, they are slate. They are once uh, a helot, yes. always a helot. Um, they are perpetual slave populations, and yet um, it, it sort of, it, it, I suppose, reinforces the uh, Spartiates' idea of their uh, specialness. It does, uh, of and their excellence. You say that there are more helots than there are Spartans. Quite right, and that disproportion gets bigger and bigger. But one reason there are more is that they breed. They're allowed to breed um, internally, whereas slaves that is bought slaves and typically non-Greek would not be allowed to have sex with no. other uh, slaves to reproduce because that's a cost to the master. He doesn't want to have to um, rear slave mouths that may not produce any uh, economic value. Whereas the helots, it absolutely was crucial that they naturally reproduce. So they get married. They seem to have some sort of sense of belonging to a particular plot. They're not just generically, you know, in Messenia. They are attached to the land of this particular Spartan. And as I say, they have all the normal features of um, Greek life in terms of religion, economy, except that they're doing it all under the shadow of instant death, because it's okay if a Spartan kills a helot, that is not murder, that is merely homicide, because it was um, decreed that all helots are by definition enemies of the Spartan state. So hmm. you can always kill an enemy in war because they are by definition outside the normal legal framework. So whenever, uh, so there's a perpetual state of war between the Spartans and the and the Helots, yeah. says, um, and uh, and yet Helots are carrying their baggage at, at war. Uh, the, Helots, the entire system of slavery allows the Spartiates to train to this extraordinary level of fitness yeah. and of uh, to basically allow them to be the special forces soldiers of, of that of that era. Um, they're not. They're, they're perpetual soldiers rather yeah. than the uh, temporary soldiers of other Greek states. Completely um, right. And, and what Epaminondas does is he completely destroys it merely by marching his army through the Valley of the Erotus. Uh, he, it, he, he destroys the entire pretense of the system. Yes and no. In other words, before his invasion in the winter of 370-69, there had been at least two previous uprisings by sure. Messenians because being Greek, they thought, hey, it's not right that we don't have access to the sorts of political rights, powers, privileges that the Spartans or any other free Greeks have. And then as the distinction between Greeks and barbarians sharpens following the Persian Wars, what is the difference between them? Well, Greeks are free, whereas barbarians are slavish or actual slaves. And the Messenians 
Romans think, hey, we're being put on the side of the barbarians. This is dreadful. So when the Peloponnesian War happens, guess which side the Messenians want to take? The Athenians against the Spartans. So there is a bit of a backdrop. It's not that Epaminondas goes into a vacuum. But what right. he does different is to make it certain that they will not be enslaved again. And that's by building a city with fantastic walls and putting in money, you know, piling in, setting up a new pantheon, all gods that are not Spartans' gods, <laughs> and so on. So creating a national identity. And the Messenians love it. And they invent, I mean, we think invent rather than merely remember, a, a mythical past when they were wonderfully free and they did this, that. and that. So there's a kind of ideological dimension on the Messenian side as well as the Theban uh, Epaminondas side. Well, tragically, um, on his fourth invasion, uh, fourth march into the Peloponnesus, uh, Epaminondas dies in battle. Yes. He, he wins the battle. Um, and the we don't have time to get into all the details, but the <laughs> descent, because we're way over time, but the descent of Thebes is rapid and dramatic and tragic. Uh, and eventually, um, that little... Um, uh, uh, just that little bastard Alexander the Great eventually <laughs> d destroys the city. He does. Uh, why? What do the Macedonians have against Thebes? I just want to. Well, to begin that. with, they they were the allies of the Macedonians. As um, Philip uh, is expanding outside Macedonia, and then coming down ever further into southern Greece, and of course his main enemy, as the Persians, as the Spartans, is Athens. So the Thebans are between Macedon and Athens. Which side do they go with? Well, to begin with. It's in their interests. They go along with Philip. But in 340 BC, Demosthenes of Athens, the wonderfully um, glib orator, who happens to be the principal representative of Thebes in Athens, he goes as an ambassador to Thebes and he says, look, you've got a kind of democracy. We've got a kind of democracy. Philip is a dictator. He's a tyrant. So he's using Demosthenes, the line that your founding fathers took against George III, the tyrant king. And the Thebans are persuaded. They come over to the Athenians. They break their alliance with Philip. Well, you can guess what Philip thinks of that. He bides his time, interestingly. He waits a couple of uh, years. And in 338, down he comes, ton of bricks. And as at Plataea in the 5th century, so at Heronia or Caronia in the 4th century, major decisive battle is fought on Boeotian territory. Philip wins hands down, Thebans defeated and very harshly treated, Athenians defe defeated, treated leniently, allowed to remain a democracy, no garrison imposed. Thebes replaced the democracy with an oligarchy and a garrison is placed on the Cadmire. You can see the point, divide and rule, Thebes versus Athens. Three years later, Alexander the Great has succeeded. Alexander, not yet the Great, has succeeded his dad. He's 20. First thought is, I've got to get all Greece as my dad had all mainland Greece, so I'm going to do a bit of fighting in mainland Greece. Then I'm going to fulfill my dad's aim, which was to do something against the Persian Empire. And of course, Alexander goes on to conquer the whole of it and then to become, as it were, a Persian king. But three, three, 
25 BC. Alexander hasn't yet gone across to join the advanced force in Asia Minor. The Thebans make a terrible mistake. They Not their first mistake. And this is to rise up. They think, they hear a rumor, Alexander's been killed. Great! Macedon is finished because when the king dies, there's all hell breaks. You know, they all fight amongst themselves who's going to succeed. No, in two weeks, actually 12 days, Alexander marches 500 kilometers, 300 miles. He's outside the gates of Thebes. There is a battle, but it's really all over. Thebans utterly smashed. And Alexander thinks, well, now, how can I make an example of Thebes? How can I prevent any other major city from even thinking about rebelling against me while I'm over in Asia? I know I'm going to destroy (laughs) Thebes utterly. I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth, which he does with two exceptions. He doesn't destroy religious shrines, temples, because he's very religious, and he wants all the gods to be on his side. So he doesn't want to destroy their uh, shrines. And secondly, he spares the house in which a poet, a famous Theban poet called Pindar, had once lived. Pindar was a um, lyric poet, a praise poet, and in particular, he wrote poems praising victors in the Panhellenic Games, the all Greek Games, Olympics, the Pythian, the Isthmian, the Nemean. So he was a kind of all Greek figure that Alexander said, look, I'm not um, anti-Thebes because you're Greek. On the contrary, I'm very, very Greek, but I'm against you because you are my enemy and you stupidly got in my way. Well, Thebes wasn't the first city to be destroyed, um, but it never, um, in, in ancient Greece, but it never it never really regains its prominence. That's right. Um, but yet it lives on. Uh, it has uh, given us uh, cultural material, which we've been playing with ever since. Um, could we very briefly talk about the, the Oedipus cycle and uh, yes. what it's come to mean? In my book, I did distinguish between really two cities of Thebes. One's the city of history, and we've been talking about that basically. But there's also the city of myth, which we touched on earlier. So Cadmos founds the city, a descendant of his Pentheus gets involved with um, Dionysus and then he gets his head cut off. That is Euripides Bacchae. Oedipus, a later king of Thebes, has uh, an unfortunate um, beginning to his life because his parents have received an oracle from Delphi that their son is going to kill his father and he's then going to marry his mother. And both of those, patricide and uh, incest, are among the most horrendous crimes that you can commit. So what's the solution? I know, here's the boy baby, let's get rid of him. We'll have him and the polite term is exposed, means put out on the mountainside, he will die of starvation and dehydration or be eaten by a wild beast or something. But a kindly shepherd, um, Theban royal palace servant, hands over Oedipus to a mate of his from Corinth, from uh, another royal uh, household. And that um, man knows that his master has just lost a child and the mother is 
distraught. So he will bring this baby and the mother will pretend that it's her real baby. And so Oedipus is brought up thinking he's the son of the king of Corinth. He goes back and we're not told really why he set out back. But on his way back to the north, he runs into his dad. He's infuriated with him, getting in his way and he kills him. That's the first bit of the uh, Delphic Oracle fulfilled. He gets back to Thebes to find Thebes is full of a plague, which has been imposed, has been spread by this terrible gorgon-like woman called the Sphinx. And so uh, the Sphinx sets riddles and Oedipus solves the riddle. He then comes back and he cures Thebes of the plague. And as his reward, he's given the widow of the, the recently widowed queen, who is his own natural mother, and everything else stems from that. Well, as Max Beerbaum said, a curious family, the Oedipuses. Uh, (laughs) uh, And from from that, uh, Athenian playwrights uh, developed their great, well, Euripides developed the great uh, cycle, the Theban cycle, which uh, I I was shocked to find out uh, took his entire life to write. Um, well, or at it's least to more produce. not so much Euripides, but Sophocles. Sophocles, I'm yes. so sorry. Yes. No, Sophocles. but you're right. Right at the end of his life, Euripides is actually in Macedonia. He's at the capital of Macedon, and he writes this extraordinary play about Thebes, but it's not yes, actually performed but, uh, in Athens. But Sophocles, who was, as it were, uh, dead straight, you know, he was a general, he was a leading financial official, he did all the things that a good Democrat should do as well as writing 90-odd plays, of which three are Theban plays. And as you rightly say, they actually cover something like 35 years of his life to write them. They're not a single trilogy. Antigone, Oedipus the King, and Oedipus at Colonus. And the last of those was produced posthumously. And Hmm. Sophocles was himself from Colonus. So it's as it were a swan song. He was in his 90s when he wrote it. And it's very, very moving. But the one that's had most resonance is the Antigone. It somehow uh, appeals to a modern sensibility, a young woman intervening on the political stage, claiming her uh, place. She is, of course, Oedipus's daughter, but also his half-sister, because they have the same mother. She has two brothers. They, of course, fall out and they kill each other in a civil war. I mean, the whole thing is an utter disaster as far as the family of Oedipus is concerned. And the Athenians presumably partly loved it because this is what Thebes is like. You know, we hate, yes, exactly. all, we hate all Thebans. Well, look at them. And partly, they, they, are t- they are tall trees um, destroying each other. In they, the yes, absolutely. And, but, and, and, the, and the trilogy captures that. It captures this, yes. this internecine warfare. I mean, not that Athens was that much better sometimes, but there, there you have it. Absolutely, absolutely. And what I think the Athenians also liked was the way they appropriated Theban myths and made them, in a sense, Athenian. So the Thebans, what they thought of it, I'd, I'd love to know. We happen yeah. to know, well, we happen to know one Theban who actually performed on stage or by the stage in Athens because he was a flute player. He played the aulos and his name was Pronomos. And he was probably the best player of that 
reeded instrument in the entire Greek world. So he would have actually seen probably some of these Theban plays which uh, his compatriots were being represented. Of course, a long time ago, they were ancient Thebans. They're not contemporary Thebans. Yeah. Well, I mean, and of course, this the, the material of the uh, Oedipus uh, uh, again re- recurs again in Freud, who was uh, yes. absolutely fascinated with, with the classical and Egypt, Egyptology and the classical yes. past. But I, I hopefully, um, I began in the introduction by quoting you. Uh, you described the Athens, Sparta, and Thebes fateful triangle. Yes. And yet we've, um, I think as you've uh, demonstrated in the book, we've forgotten one of the apexes of that triangle, uh, yes. without which we can't really understand what the other two are doing. Um, because the, the positioning of the three, are, they're always positioning themselves against the other two yes. or towards the other two. Um, how could we ever have forgotten a Thebes? I mean, how, did, how did that happen? Yeah. My original time. My original title was actually going to be The Lost City of Ancient Greece. And and for 20 years, it physically, as I've said, was lost. It did not exist between 335 and 315 BC. But I was persuaded to go for forgotten. And that does get this point that it wasn't completely uh, obliterated, but it just never was given its due. Three reasons I would give. There was never a decent Theban historian to sort of put the Theban point of view with such an impact that it would affect the tradition. The dominant tradition about Thebes comes through Herodotus and Thucydides and Polybius, not from a Theban historian. Secondly, the Athenians, cultural snobs, also enemies very often of the Thebans, and all Boeotians were swine, this famous um, nasty-staying Boeotian swine. So the Thebans get this negativity, the slur that they were culturally a little bit barbarian. And then thirdly, um, yes, it was lost for for 20 years, but after that, it never really recovered. It didn't do anything worth preserving that would have made an impact and would have enabled it to correct the negative or the skewed ancient tradition. It, it is interesting, I think, also to think about the ways in which the the cultures that came after it uh, were not attracted to it. Um, yeah. So there was something in um, there's something about the modern commercial society that makes Athens very attractive. It's yes. democratic. It's democratic. It's merchant. Uh, there was something curious enough in the 18th century that made Spartans very attractive. I mean, yes. Um, know, the- I mean, Sam, Sam Adams, a radical politician, who would have thought you would think would really like a Paminondas nonetheless refers to Massachusetts' as Christian Sparta. Yes. Um, Rousseau likes Sparta. Um, yes. Okay, we might play, we can see that in Rousseau with his totalitarian tendencies, but um, there's, <laughs> uh, there's, there's something you would think that the classical Republicans of the American Revolution would much more have spoke a lot more about Thebes than they actually did. There are um, exceptions, but um, to me, emblematic is the fact that the man, I, I'm a great respecter of him in some respects, Sir Walter Raleigh, in yeah. the Tower of London, uh, early 17th century, put there first by Elizabeth and then by James I, he wrote, and it survived, we've got it, a history of the world. And he thought Epaminondas was the greatest ancient Greek. Well, not everybody thinks that Raleigh was the greatest (laughs) Englishman. And so, because he was beheaded in the tower, that speaking up for Epaminondas didn't do Epaminondas (laughs) or Thebes much. That's good.
Well, my guest today has been Paul Cartledge. He is the A.G. Leventis Senior Research Fellow at Clare College, University of Cambridge, and author of Thebes, The Forgotten City of Ancient Greece. Paul Cartledge, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Well, thank you for inviting me, Al. It's been a huge pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 